Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. If everyone could take their seats, we'll get started. Thanks so much. Thanks for being with us. My name is Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president of the Cato Institute. I wanted to start out this morning as we do every event like this by thanking all of you who are here who are so generous with your support of Cato and our mission to advance liberty in the United States and around the world. We're so appreciative of the generous support that makes our work possible. Also, uh, your neighbor, and our board chairman, Bob Levy, is here. Bob is so generous with his time and his resources in the mission to advance liberty. And also our uh, board member, Jim Kiltz, is here, who is uh, also now your neighbor in, uh, in Naples. So uh, welcome, everybody. My wife, Cynthia, and I got involved in Cato about 20 years ago when we started uh, dedicating our resources, our philanthropic resources, to liberty. We took a strategic view of, uh, of charity and philanthropy. Um, I know a lot of people are involved in direct charity, and that's fantastic. We tried to take a strategic view. We feel that if you want people to be able to live prosperous lives, if you want to minimize poverty, if you want people to live meaningful lives, get the state out of, their way, out of the way and let them be free. We're also very concerned about what kind of world our children and grandchildren are gonna be living in. I feel so blessed to have been raised in a relatively free country, and all of us in this room have been able to live our version of the American dream. And it's essential that we preserve those opportunities for the generations to come so that they can live in freedom, in peace, and prosperity. Cato was formed over 40 years ago in 1977, and as Bob likes to say, it's the only wholly consistent voice for liberty in the nation's capital. Cato advocates for liberty in every realm for every person. Our work is divided into a few broad categories. We like to view ourselves as the keeper of the flame of liberty for future generations. So our scholarship, our intellectual work, tries to bend the arc of ideas over time in the direction of more human freedom, less state intervention, more liberty. We also know that trying to drive tangible change has to be on the table. And so we engage in, uh, in projects, specific projects, where we're trying to move policy tangibly in the direction of more liberty. Um, when I stood here last year, I mentioned, announced that we had just filed a lawsuit against the SEC. That's uh, just ended its first round. We'll be strategizing on Monday about what our next steps are. That's gonna be a long slog. Since we got together last year, we announced a project on poverty and inequality in California. Because a lot of people don't realize that notwithstanding all the tremendous assets and affluence that exists in California, the state has the highest poverty rate in the country. We think there are lessons to be learned. We're very actively uh, involved. The, the director of the project, Michael Tanner, has met in the last six months with over 100 people in California, state legislators, members of the governor's office, mayors, advocacy groups, business people. We're trying to spur real 
policy change in California because we think a lot of the policy mistakes, particularly mistakes of progressive governance, have exacerbated inequality and poverty in California. So we're trying to spur real change there. And we're also trying to set an example for other states that might go down some of those mistaken paths to shine a light on the fact that uh, there are many impediments to prosperity and many policy mistakes erected by government that trap people in poverty. We have an active campaign against the Jones Act. We hope there have been rumblings about maybe having an LNG waiver at some point so that Americans don't have to buy natural gas from Trinidad and Tobago or Russia. Um, those are just a few of the examples of the tangible policy battles that we're fighting day in and day out. So we like to think that uh, Cato serves up government both a help, healthy helping of ideas uh, and action. When I stood here last year, one of the other things I told you is that in my five years in Washington now, I've observed that from far left to far right and almost everywhere in between, most people are talking to themselves. People are preaching to the choir. And our mission at Cato, we don't aspire to be the number one organization preaching to our choir. We aspire to be the number one organization bringing the ideas of liberty to those who don't yet understand them or appreciate them or adhere to them. I mentioned last year that we had a project underway. Um, if I could cue my slides. I'm pushing the green arrow, but they're not advancing. We, uh, when I was here last year, I mentioned we had an experimental project underway. We were going to bring a couple hundred teachers to Cato last summer, and we did that. We had 160 teachers, mostly high school teachers, many of them AP teachers. They came from 38 states in the District of Columbia. And uh, generous supporters of Cato funded a half a million dollars to make this program a reality. And it was the most extraordinary event any of us can remember at the Institute. We had them here for four days. We call it Project Sphere. It's an attempt to reach out to people across the political spectrum and the ideological spectrum. It was very heartening that uh, this was the most philosophically diverse group that I think has ever been assembled at Cato. Um, we really did accomplish drawing a group of educators to the institute that really represented the philosophical makeup of, of uh, the educational establishment in America. So you can imagine that uh, a majority of them were not libertarians. But it was an incredibly energizing week. This picture was published on the front page of the Cato Policy Report magazine. And uh, my wife, I didn't get in trouble, my wife's head is in the foreground. And she was delighted at the way her hair looked in the picture. <laughs> so I didn't get in trouble. But to give you an idea of the energy and the, what we accomplished and what we're going to build on going, going forward, an AP tier AP teacher said the Sphere Summit, which is what we called the event, was phenomenal. It was the best professional development I've ever participated in as an educator. We spoke about tribalism and partisanship and also talked about some of the issues that we should all agree on, like free speech. 
We had Caleb Brown from Cato, Nadine Strassen, the former president of the ACLU, and Jonathan Rausch from the Brookings Institution talking about the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, particularly in the academy. One of the independent school heads who was attending tweeted out at the time, the best discussion of free speech I've ever witnessed. We held policy forums on a variety of topics, poverty, healthcare, criminal justice, debt and deficits, where we had someone from Cato presenting our point of view and someone from another organization presenting a different point of view. We had panels of conservatives, progressives, and libertarians talking about how they're misunderstood. Most of us libertarians feel that we're caricatured as being greedy, selfish bastards. That's not true. We care deeply about poverty, prosperity, allowing individuals to live meaningful lives. And we have a particular point of view about how we can accomplish that. We also talked about what are the biggest problems facing our country. And so there were things that educators hear about all the time, like climate change and inequality, but they also heard about out-of-control entitlement problems, debt and deficits, and other issues that animate libertarians. We presented an hour-long seminar on our Human Progress website, and this was probably the most exciting hour of the week, where a majority of the teachers were telling us that they were going to be using this platform in their classrooms next year. I visited a school where two teachers had attended the seminar and were so excited about it, they asked if I would come speak to the faculty at their school. And one of the attendees noted that some of the teachers at that school were actually using human progress. And when he asked who was, eight hands went up. We had workshops to develop applications to bring some of what we had discussed into the classroom. And this was great. Someone stood up and said, that, you know, this was very informative, enlightening. It debunked misconceptions, like the fact that libertarians are greedy and selfish. One t we're very proud when one teacher said, it's by far the best event I've ever attended. The immense knowledge I, I gleaned will be passed on to my 200 to 220 students a year. And the teacher said, we all have networks. We really believe in what you did this week, and so we're going to help you build the network. So we're going to spend a million dollars this summer and bring 400 teachers to Cato. I just hired a full-time director of the program where we have uh, a couple of initiatives we've planned. We're going to build some travel teams to actually go out with a video-based program to visit schools around the country. We are going to be having web-based programs that we intend to give to schools for free that hopefully will be able to qualify for continuing education for, uh, for teachers. And uh, we feel that uh, what we learned last, week, last year, last summer, is that uh, we think we've stumbled onto something really big. Uh, the fellow I hired to uh, direct the program, I asked him to think aspirationally, what do you think we can accomplish? He said, we should be able to get four to 600 teachers to Cato every year. We should be able to reach 2,000 teachers a year when we're fully geared up with our travel teams, and we should be able to reach another 10,000 via the web. If we can accomplish that over the next couple of years and keep it going, we can reach tens of thousands of teachers around the country and hundreds of thousands of students. Um, obviously, we're, uh, we're delighted at, uh, at what we might be able to accomplish here. Uh, we're going to be raising money, and we encourage anyone who's interested in, uh, in 
reaching the educational establishment, reaching students to talk to us and uh, talk about ways you might be helpful in uh, allowing us to accomplish what is uh, a really exciting, uh, exciting series of objectives for us. Again, it's all about, I love coming to, or, to events like this where we have like-minded people and we kind of convene and recharge and talk about the things that unite us. But we really don't change the world unless we change minds and that means reaching people who disagree with us. And I don't think any organization is as aspirational about accomplishing that and uh, has plans to, uh, to be able to accomplish it than, uh, than the Cato Institute. And we would uh, welcome, welcome your help in accomplishing these very important objectives. And again, setting the, uh, achieving the, some core, very important elements of our mission that keep the flame of liberty alive for future generations. With that, I want to reiterate how thankful we are to all of you here today who support Cato. And it's my pleasure to uh, introduce the first speaker, who's my colleague, David Bowes. David's the executive vice president of the Cato Institute. I sometimes call him the chief intellectual officer of the Cato Institute. David's book, The Libertarian Mind, those who haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. It is a fantastic summary of the Cato philosophy. He's also our chief quality officer. It's said that uh, David can spot an error in footnote 38 at 60 paces, and uh, many colleagues can attest to, uh, to that. But David has been at Cato for more than 35 years. He has dedicated his entire life and career to advancing liberty. And uh, without him, Cato would not be the uh, formidable force for liberty that it, that it is today. So uh, please join me in offering a warm welcome to my colleague, David Bose. Thank you, Peter, and thanks to all of you for being here. Appreciate your support, appreciate uh, your turning out for us today. Um, do libertarians run the world? Believe it or not, that's what a lot of people have been saying. In its obituary for our late board member David Koch, the venerable New Republic magazine blamed him for the libertarian radicalization of America. And Salon, another left-wing magazine, blamed him for the libertarian dystopia we all live in. On the right, a new group of big government conservatives have announced that they are organizing to save America from the fiery pits of free market libertarianism it has fallen into. So when we see these lamentations about libertarians running the world, most of my colleagues roll their eyes and say, what are they smoking? We've got trillion dollar deficits, endless wars, criminal injustice, $2 trillion in regulatory costs. How can anybody think libertarians are running this world? But I've decided on a different response. My answer is you bet libertarians run the world. And it's a, I mean, we don't run the world because nobody can do that, but we did create the basic operating system by which the world runs. And that is a darn good thing. Because more than even libertarians often acknowledge, we now live in a world of freedom and progress. We have extended the promises of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to people to whom they had long been denied. 
Around the world, more people in more countries than ever before in the world enjoy religious freedom, personal freedom, democratic governance, the freedom to own and trade property, the chance to start a business, equal rights, civility, respect, a higher standard of living, and a longer life expectancy. War, disease, violence, slavery, and inhumanity have been dramatically reduced. And it is libertarian ideas and liberty-minded people who have made that happen. For millennia before the modern world, with few exceptions, the world was marked by despotism, slavery, hierarchy, rigid class privilege, and literally no increase in the standard of living. Scholars have done graphs of change in the standard of living as far back as they think it can be measured. And it won't surprise you to know that the modern part is referred to as a hockey stick because you've got from, let's say, 1500, 1700, what is the world GDP per capita? It's like this for hundreds of years. And then around 1800 in the Netherlands and England, it turns up. And in the United States, it turns up. And it goes like this. Now, this flat line continues in much of the world. In China, it turns up around 1980. And then it looks like a hockey stick. But some scholars have tried to extend this back because you're thinking, you know, okay, the Middle Ages was pretty bad, but it was better than the Roman world, and the Roman world was better. And the scholars, historians of economic life say, no, not really. On average, it's been like this for 10,000 years and maybe 100,000 years. And for most people in the world, it didn't get better until Changes happen. And what were those changes? In the 17th, 18th century, it was that libertarian ideas came into the world. And of course, they weren't called that back then. They went by different names at different times. But they were ideas like human rights, markets, private property, the religious toleration, the value of commerce, the dignity of the individual, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and peace. The very idea that the world could be peaceful, and if it was peaceful, not only would fewer people be killed, but fewer buildings would be destroyed, fewer farms would be destroyed, and progress could happen. And progress was an important part of these new ideas, the very idea that the world could get better. And all of this was about human flourishing in a way that had not happened before. And that all brought about what Deirdre McCloskey calls the great fact of human history. She capitalizes great fact because it's the most important fact. The enormous and unprecedented growth of living standards that began in the Western world around 1800. Probably the most important thing that happened in human history since the Neolithic Revolution, which is to say when people stopped being hunters and gatherers and settled down and started cultivating plants some 7,000 years ago. These ideas of liberalism or libertarianism spread to more aspects of society and more parts of the world. They gave Europe a century of peace and progress. 
the great fact spread from Northwestern Europe and the East Coast of the United States to the rest of Europe, to Latin America, to parts of Asia. Libertarian ideas were never perfectly realized, of course. When they faded in the late 19th century, we got World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. Some countries endured the horrors of communism and national socialism. Mercantilism, cronyism, bigotry and discrimination, political murders, authoritarianism plagued and still plague parts of the world. And even in our own country, in my own lifetime, in the lifetime of most of you here, we lived with military conscription, 90% marginal income tax rates, wage and price controls, restricted entry to whole fields of endeavor like communications and transportation, indecency laws, Jim Crow. But progress has been happening. After the horrors of World War I and World War II, we had a renewed commitment to free trade, the international rule of law, and constitutional liberal democracy, and that brought about another long period of great power, peace, and prosperity. And the spread of property rights and market institutions to more parts of the world, to China and India and Latin America and even Africa, has brought more than a billion people out of extreme poverty in 25 years. Deirdre McCloskey estimates that per capita GDP has increased by 30 times over two centuries. That is, from 1800 or 1820 to now, there's been a 3,000% increase in the standard of living. Now, that's kind of an unimaginable thing. What is a 3,000% increase in standard of living? We can't figure, we can't imagine what that would be from today, but from 1800, that's the best way to measure it. Another way is just to think about the way even wealthy people lived not so very long ago. Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States. His teenage son was playing tennis. He got a blister on his foot. The blister got infected. The son of the president of the United States died from a blister on his foot because doctors obviously the best doctors couldn't fix it at the time. I went to Vanderbilt University, so one of my hobbies is going around and looking at the massive, impressive homes that Vanderbilt's built. Um, one of them, some of you may have been to, built more in Asheville, maybe the largest house in the United States. Incredible accomplishment. George Vanderbilt built that, and at only about 50, um, I believe from an abscess in his tooth, he died. The man who built the biggest house in America couldn't find a dentist who could fix the abscess in his tooth. That's what it means to say we've had a 3,000% increase in standard of living, and that was halfway there. Currently, there certainly are still problems in the world. Poverty still exists. There was a financial crisis in 2008, AIDS and coronavirus and environmental problems and hate. Uh, all of those things are real, but the Economic Freedom of the World report reports that economic freedom has increased globally since 1980 when the report started measuring. World trade, women's rights, gay rights, all have expanded in much of the world, and it was libertarian ideas 
and policies that brought about those, those elements of progress. And so I am happy to say, yes, libertarians run the world, and we are happy to take credit for the unbelievable progress that we've had. But nothing is guaranteed. As T.S. Eliot said, there is no such thing as a lost cause because there is no such thing as a gained cause. Ideas we thought were dead are back. Socialism, protectionism, ethnic nationalism, anti-Semitism, which by the way has always been entangled with anti-capitalism. Even for God's sake, industrial policy. This new group of conservatives I told you about, one of the things they want is industrial policy. The policies that gave Japan two decades of stagnation, um, the policies that were floated back in the 1980s because we thought they were helping Japan and then it turned out two decades of stagnation. And that's why our job is not done. We have to worry about the rise of illiberalism in countries around the world on both right and left with the threats that that brings to liberty, democracy, trade, growth, and even peace. And so it remains to us to defend the constitutional order of our republic to remind people over and over of the wonders that America has produced, of how rare freedom and abundance have been in the world, and the rules that are essential to their continuance. And sometimes in this effort, I feel like Milton Friedman did in 1984 when National Review asked him to respond to a conservative argument for tariffs back then. <clears throat> and in his article, he began by seeming to sigh and say, I can't believe we have to go over this again. But here we are. All the bad new ideas are bad old ideas. Libertarians and classical liberals have been fighting them off for more than 200 years, and we'll keep doing it. And as both the right and the left here and abroad seem to be moving in the wrong directions, maybe we can play a role in strengthening a true liberal libertarian center. People rarely think of libertarians as moderates. I'll bet those teachers don't think of libertarians as moderates. But at Cato, we've written a few times about a libertarian center in American politics, which might be people who call themselves fiscally conservative and socially tolerant, or people who think taxes should be lower and don't care who you marry. Those people don't fit neatly into either the red right-wing box or the blue left-wing box. <clears throat> and as the two parties become more polarized, usually in the wrong ways, Democrats are becoming more tax and transfer, even more socialist, and Republicans are becoming more nationalist and protectionist. Libertarians may well find themselves in the center with the moderates, with people who believe in an open society and an open economy. And around the world, with left-wing autocrats and ethnic nationalist autocrats vying for power, classical liberals defend the broad center of peaceful and productive people in a society of liberty under law. These ideas are needed now more than ever. We have been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries and winning. But the battle is not over, and that's why we continue to publish what we do, to hold these events, to ask for your support, to keep up the struggle. Thank you very much.
I believe we have some time for questions, and I can't see half the audience for these lights, so if you'll raise your hand, people with microphones will come around. I see somebody over there. Yeah, if you'd please uh, give us a sense of where Michael Bloomberg fits in all of this. I have to slip out of here a few minutes to answer that question for Fox News. They uh, contacted me this morning. Um, it's an interesting question. He's trying to do something very different from what other politicians have done. He's, he's skipping the first four primaries and caucuses. He's spending an incredible amount of money. Uh, I don't know if you've seen his ads on TV. I, I never watch ads, but I see Bloomberg's face flipping by uh, whenever I'm watching anything on TV. Um, here's how I would assess him as a politician. Um, I don't think he's a very good politician. He's a very smart guy, obviously. He built an incredible business, became very wealthy. But I've read about his campaigns for mayor of New York, and it sounds like he wasn't very good at giving a speech. Uh, he wasn't that impressive in debates. He's not a backslapper, you know. He's no Bill Clinton out there who makes you feel that he likes you when he meets people. Um, but he spent an incredible amount of money. He had to spend $100 million to get reelected against a fairly weak Democratic candidate. So he's a real test of money. Now, how would he be as president? Well, he'd probably be competent in some sense, although running the Bloomberg Company or even running New York City is not like running the vast federal government, but he'd probably be good at hiring smart people and uh, some management things. A lot of these people who come out of business, like Mitt Romney, uh, maybe Bloomberg, I always think they should be head of OMB. They should not be president. Um, a president needs a vision. The head of OMB, a good manager, would be a good idea. Uh, Bloomberg is absolutely a nanny statist. Um, he is, as a lot of my friends say, a gun grabber. He has spent a lot of money to advance gun control. He's fiscally responsible in the sense that he understands what it is to meet a payroll and balance a budget, so that's a good thing. He is not, I think, a socialist or a protectionist or a nativist, and all of that is good, but certainly wouldn't be my first choice. We're going to find out tonight, I think, whether he can handle a debate. My sense there is that he's very knowledgeable, he's very smart, He's probably quick with facts and so on, um, but he is maybe not quick-witted the way you need to be in a debate, and he can also be short-tempered. So, that's a whole lot of facts, and I'm not sure what they add up to. The Democrats believe that President Trump is beatable. He has a 43% approval rating. 52, 53% of the people don't approve of him. But the Democrats have a 78-year-old socialist, a 77-year-old former vice president who seems to be maybe slipping, um, a 37-year-old gay guy who seems very smart, but he's only been mayor of South Bend, Indiana, um, a senator from Michigan, a woman senator, that would be, you know, a, a different sort of thing, um, who hasn't yet really caught on. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out a couple. Well, I left out the billionaires. 
Um, and, and now they have Bloomberg. So I think they all, I think all the Democrats feel like we know that a generic Democrat, if we just had like a cutout of a face but no face on it and it said D, we believe that D could beat President Trump. We're just not sure any actual candidate could beat him. Over here. Thank you very much for your time this morning. From a philosophical perspective, could you, and broadly, could you explain the difference between, or what you see the difference is between libertarianism and classic liberalism? You'd, you'd mentioned that a little bit earlier in your, in your speech, just was wondering. Thank you. Well, I don't know that there is that much difference between libertarianism and classical liberalism. Um, the reason we call, some of us call ourselves libertarians is because the meaning of the word liberal changed. So I would just, I'd be happy to call myself a liberal, a person who believes in free markets, property rights, human rights, government by consent of the governed, religious toleration, free speech, etc. That's classical liberalism. Now, a philosophical answer to that uh, might be libertarians are the subset of classical liberals who emphasize the self-ownership of the individual. Why is slavery wrong? Because every person is the owner of himself. Possibly why is taxation wrong? Because every person is the owner of the property that he produces. Whereas classical liberals more broadly would be people who believe that we ought to move toward markets, we ought to rely more on markets, we ought to avoid international war, we ought to allow peaceful toleration, but maybe we need some more laws than libertarians would say. Um, I think Milton Friedman and Hayek both would have said that they were liberals and old enough to remember when you could say that, but Friedman acknowledged, I have to call myself a libertarian in the modern world. Um, I don't know that Hayek ever got comfortable with that word. He continued to call himself a Whig, which was also one of the names that these ideas went by. Locally, here in Florida, property owners are under a severe pressure right now because the state legislature is attempting to deny local municipalities such as Naples the right to regulate short-term rentals. Some of these local lovely neighborhoods are being uh, t terrorized, basically, by short-term rentals. So the state of Florida thinks that that would be something that the state should deny local municipalities the right to do. Can you characterize the effort by the state uh, submitting to the Airbnb lobbies as uh, freedom of government? or what, Is that consistent with the Cato philosophy to, uh, quote, nationalize at a state level the control of property? Well, I think there are a couple of different issues there. One is, is it a good idea to have laws regulating Airbnb and so on? And there, my leaning is always toward property rights, which means to allow property owners to use their property the way they want to. Um, I'm going to spend a few days in Fort Lauderdale after this, and I looked at a lot of Airbnb properties, and I trust that if I had, I ended up picking a hotel instead, but I trust if I had picked an Airbnb 
uh, property, I would have been a good neighbor for the people who lived in the area. The second issue is at what level of government should decisions like this be made? And my general libertarian view is that decisions should be made as close to the people as possible. So that would argue for cities being able to make their own regulations. In legal theory, though, it seems to me that the federal government was created by the states, but the cities were also created by the states. Um, now, maybe that's an old Southern political theory, but states have an element of sovereignty that I think cities don't. And I think, so under legal theory, I think the state has the authority to do this. And there have been places in Tennessee, I got a phone call um, from, the, from the local NPR there, asking me what did I think about the attempt of the state legislature in Tennessee to forbid the local cities to have gun control laws. And I said, well, you know, I'm generally in favor of letting local communities make their own decisions, but as a matter of legal theory, I believe the state legislature does have the authority to do this. Now, whether it's wise for the state government, <coughs> excuse me, whether it's wise for the state government to exercise its authority to tell cities in Colorado they can't have gay rights laws, cities in Tennessee they can't have gun control, or cities in Florida to say they cannot restrict Airbnb uh, and other short-term rentals, um, that's a separate matter. That's a policy issue. And I think that libertarians are likely going to go different directions on that. We tend not to like gun control, so we might say, yeah, state legislature, go ahead and tell the cities they can't have gun control. Um, I also think the federal government guarantees a lot of rights to the people. So, for instance, the Kelo case on eminent domain was about whether property owners have a right not to have their property taken and given to some other private entity that could theoretically use it more efficiently, build something more valuable, uh, return more tax revenue to the city. Most of my libertarian friends believed, yes, the Constitution does guarantee the right of property owners to, uh, to, to not have their property taken. The Supreme Court, unfortunately, ruled differently. But it is appropriate for the Supreme Court to protect individual rights as protected in the Bill of Rights against actions by states and cities. The Heller decision that our chairman, Bob Levy, spearheaded told the city, uh, the, the District of Columbia, that it could not pass gun control laws in violation of the Second Amendment. So I think all that's appropriate. That doesn't necessarily apply in any of these specific cases because obviously under the Constitution, governments have scope for action in various ways. Anybody got a microphone right now? I see one back there. Sir, uh, concerned about current anti-Semitism, I'd like you to explain your comment, please that anti-Semitism is, quote, always entangled with anti-capitalism. Okay. Um, in Europe, historically, there were many restrictions on Jewish people in Europe. Um, one, in some places, was that they could not join the guilds, the guilds of artisans, you know, of blacksmiths and, and jewelry makers and so on. Another was... Uh, in some places, that they could not own land. 
Um, even if they were farming it, they couldn't own it. One of the effects of that, it seems to me, was to push Jewish people in the direction of, well, what can we do? Well, one thing we can do is study, get a good education, have human capital that's in your mind that will serve you well wherever you are, including if you have to flee, which, as you know, was often the case. Another was one of the things they were allowed to go into was money and banking, partly because Christian teachings on usury discouraged Christians from being bankers and lenders, and so a lot of Jews got into that. Because of that, a lot of the resentment that's always around against bankers and money lending got tied up into resentment and hatred toward Jews. So I think you find all over the world, well, for one thing, any group that is perceived to be middlemen in transactions, a lot of people don't understand what is the point of middlemen. I grew the food and he's going to eat it. Why do we need this, this wholesaler and this marketer and this grocer and this banker getting in between me and the consumer. Well, there are obvious good reasons why you need that. Farmers are busy farming. They can't also be running a grocery store. That's why we have middlemen. But people often resent middlemen. They resent people who they perceive do not work because, for instance, they are landlords, and so they're just charging you money for the house you live in. And a lot of times, that gets translated into resentment against an ethnic group that is perceived to be part of that. In some places, especially Europe, that was often Jewish people. In Asia, it's often Chinese people. In Indonesia, Malaysia, other Asian countries, Chinese people are often a very entrepreneurial class, and therefore they are resented and sometimes the subject of ethnic attacks and so on. Um, when, you, when you look at Venezuela, for instance, when Chavez wanted to attack somebody, what would he say about him? He would say, he's pro-American, he's a Zionist, he's a homosexual, he's in, the league, he's in league with the billionaires. Those are like the four horsemen of hatred um, that you see dictators around the world using. So that's what I mean. I think historically there was a lot of connection between people who hated and resented capitalism and people who held anti-Semitic ideas. Thank you all.